All right, here's what we're going to do right now. We're going to switch gears. We're going to get into the book of Galatians. If you guys wouldn't mind opening up to chapter 3. Uh, we're going to pick it up about verse 1. It's where we left off. Uh, we started several weeks ago, almost two months ago now. A brand new series going through the book of Galatians. Uh, we've come to this particular great passage here today. I'm really excited about it because what we're going to be looking at here today is a brand new type of theological concept that's very big, very huge. I'm very excited about it. One of the things, big theological concepts that we just looked at a few weeks ago was the word justification. And what we basically mean by that is the means by which we as human beings are made right with God. That technical word, the theological nomenclature for that is justification. That the way by which we are made right with God or justified in our relationship with God is that Jesus did it all for us and we trust what Jesus did for us. Therefore, by trusting in what Jesus did for us, he takes our sin, our unrighteousness, and in exchange, God gifts to us Jesus' righteousness. So that when God looks at us, he sees us perfectly forgiven, perfectly cleansed, but he also, on top of that, sees us the way he sees our, his son. He loves us. So the simple reality of that is that the way some of you might think about this is maybe some of you are here today, you think God is angry with you. If you're a Christian, you need to know God is not angry with you. And not only is just God not angry with you, God actually completely loves you. That's the big doctrine called justification. The second doctrine that we're going to be taking a look at here today, again, it's a very big doctrine, even though Paul does not come straight out and use the word, it is sort of nonetheless the idea. It's the big theological concept called regeneration. And whereas justification is the work that God did for us on the cross, regeneration is the work that God does in us through the Spirit. God, through the cross, saves us because of Jesus God through the Spirit works in us, transforming us, giving us God's desires, giving us God's passions, helping us to love God the way that Jesus loves the Father, helping us to love Jesus the way the Spirit loves Jesus, and so on and so forth. Helping us to love the things that God loves, helping us to hate the things that God hates, helping us to want to be a part of and contribute to the things that God particularly has vested interest in primarily his mission of promoting the gospel does that make sense so justification is what we looked at a few weeks ago regeneration is what we'll be taking a look at here today i want to jump in you'll see what i'm talking about we'll make some comments about this as we go through i'm going to read through verse one down to about verse five and then we'll jump in oh foolish galatians who has bewitched you it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Then he says, for consider Abraham. He believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness, or as righteousness. So what we're going to take a look at here today, again, is this bigger, broader working, whereby we would describe it as regeneration. 
God is now working in us. So the big question that Paul's asking is, how did God basically begin to do this work in you? Was it because you worked hard? Was it because you're keeping the works of the law? See, what's happening here in this letter that whom, uh, the people that Paul's writing to is this was a group of people that lived in a region called Galatia, modern-day Turkey. They came to know Jesus. Uh, most of these people primarily were non-Jews. We call them Gentiles. And what had ended up happening was they fell in love with Jesus. They loved Jesus. They were saved. They were people that came to know God. And then these false teachers came in and started teaching them false concepts. What you need to know is that not all false teachers are people that come in and teach a modified Jesus. You need to know this. Because sometimes people only have in their theological perspective that a false teacher is somebody that comes in and says, Jesus, by the way, is, you know, Lucifer's half-brother. And you are like, no, I don't think he is. That's a modified Jesus. And if you only think of a false teacher as somebody only modifying who Jesus is or changing who Jesus is by rearranging the DNA a little bit, then you will miss, you will miss other false teachers that come in. And what Paul is writing to these people about is that they had false teachers come to them, but the false teachers were not modifying who Jesus was. They weren't coming in and saying, you don't need Jesus. They weren't coming in and saying, Jesus really isn't God. They were actually coming in and they were completely theologically correct in their assumptions and assessment about Jesus. But they were coming in and saying, you need Jesus who died, rose again for you on your behalf and you need to be circumcised. And you need to follow the Mosaic law. So Paul says, these guys are false teachers. They're false brethren. So false teachers can also take the form of coming into a congregation and saying, hi, I'm here to tell you all about everything that's wrong in Christianity. And never once mention the cross. Never once mention the beauty, the power, the greatness of God demonstrated through the gospel. Never once mention the reality of the cross. And all they mention to you is just a bunch of polemics and arguments and apologetics and ideas and concepts, but never really get to the gospel. Paul would say what these people are doing is they're creating cause-oriented people that care more about their causes, more about their religious duty, more about their activities than they do about the cross. So Paul says, I'm, I'm baffled by you guys. You guys are so foolish because you guys started out with Jesus and somewhere along the line, you guys ended up with circumcision. Paul's like, I don't get it. It's almost as if somehow you guys have like fallen under this spell. Like somehow you guys got a curse attached to you guys. Someone casts a spell over you guys. That's why it says who's bewitched you. Some of your translations might say, who casts a spell upon you? I think is what the New Living Translation says. But Paul's like, I just don't get it. So his whole argument is, you started out in the spirit, but now something's changing in your life. Something's happening. You guys are not clinging to, loving, holding on to Jesus. You're turning to other things, other ideas, other causes, other ideologies, and other ologies, period. All right? So his concern is to try to bring them back to Jesus. He's very forceful in his language. And he's very concerned about where these people are going. The three things that I want to kind of bring to your attention that we're going to be taking a look at here today is that, first of all, the gospel ultimately involves the Spirit's work of being born in you. The Spirit is at work being birthed inside 
you. This is what Paul says again in verse 2. He says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? So Paul is going to now jump into a really large subject that he has not covered up until this point, which tells us that this group of believers called the Galatians, they were already familiar with this subject, this topic of what it meant to have the Holy Spirit. It's the very first time Paul mentions the Spirit in the book. And so for us, I don't want to assume that we understand exactly what he's talking about. I want to try to dissect this a little bit for us so that we can try to understand what it means. So when Paul's asking this hypothetical question, did you guys receive the Spirit uh, by works of the law, by doing the works of Moses, by being circumcised, by eating kosher food, by living according to the Mosaic law? Is that how the Spirit of God was birthed in you? Or was it a gift that God generously, lovingly, mercifully gave to you because he loves you? So the first thing I want you to notice is that (coughs) Christianity, the gospel, is really about the Holy Spirit taking up residency inside you or new birth inside you. Again, this, even though it's not mentioned here, is the big concept of regeneration. The Holy Spirit is born inside you, living inside you. So with that being said, I want to take you on a brief excursus through the Bible as to who the Holy Spirit is, how he shows up. Now I mentioned this is very brief. Here's a few things I want to point out. The first of which is we see the Holy Spirit the very first time showing up in the book of Genesis, chapter 1. It's when God created all things. And then we're told that the Holy Spirit was brooding over the face of the deep. The Holy Spirit was moving over this sort of uncreated creation and he was moving over it to create it to bring orderliness out of it to make beauty out of it to create out of it to bring creativity over the creation that God the Father and God the Son were told in Colossians Jesus was a part of the whole deal of creation as well that the Holy Spirit now is also a part of this creative work of God the Father God the Son and God the Spirit working in cooperation over this secondly we go on to see even though it's not mentioned up here, is you basically notice is that as soon as God created mankind, uh, in the Hebrew text it tells us that God breathed into his nostrils and he became a living being. That's very important. In fact, there is sort of an interplay of Hebrew words going on there in the text that I think are important and significant. The word uh, breath is actually the uh, Hebrew word um, ruach, which is literally the word that gets used to translate uh, the word spirit. So when you talk about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, uh, it's the Hebrew word ruach. In the New Testament, it's the Greek word pneuma. And it basically means the same thing in both languages. It can be translated spirit. It can be translated uh, breath. It can be translated as breeze or wind. It's something that sort of has no shape, no form. It, it just is. It's, it's, not, it's not less than a force or an essence, but the Holy Spirit in this case is more than a force in an essence. It's not, it's, it's a being. It's a he. He's described as somebody. So it's important to know this. And so when God breathed into the nostrils of Adam, he lived. And the implication is this, is that the reason why he lived is that the Spirit of God gave him life. You need to know this, that the way that we live, the way that God originally gave life to mankind was that he was made to be dependent upon God. 
You should know this. Every time you take in a breath, every time you breathe, every time you inhale, you do so because you are dependent upon oxygen. This was God's way from the very beginning to say, every breath you take is a gift from me. But what had happened was mankind sinned. And rather than being dependent beings upon their creator, they became autonomous beings at war with their creator, turning away from their creator, walking away from their creator. I love what the great uh, preacher George Whitfield described in one of his sermons. He says, have you ever wondered why dogs are always barking at people and coyotes are barking and yapping and animals are always trying to just attack you and there's this constant problem with these animals? He says, the reason why they do that is because they know that there's a war between people and their creator. It's just like, they, they just know that there's this constant ongoing offense whereby man is pushing God away. Man basically says, I don't need God to live. I don't need God's wisdom to live. I've got my own wisdom. I don't need God's power to live. I'm already strong. I don't need God's help. I'm very smart. I'm very self-reliant. I'm very self-sufficient. I'm very capable in and of my own efforts and energies and strength. And what happens is that separates you from your creator, which basically leads to death. You need to understand this. God created you to live, but sin drives us away from God, and we find ourselves operating under the pretense of death. We die. That's why God says, the day that you eat of the fruit, you do the thing that I told you not to do, you will die. What goes on, sort of fast forward now a few hundred years or so, God now brings about into existence this nation called the people of Israel. To demonstrate his ongoing presence with the people of Israel, God brings the people of Israel through the wilderness, and as they're going through the wilderness, he brings about this huge pillar of cloud or smoke by day. And at nighttime, that big pillar of cloud turns into a pillar of fire. And this would be especially helpful, especially if you're out in the wilderness and it's very hot in the wilderness in the middle of the desert and God provides a cloud for you. That's great. In the middle of the night when it gets cold, God provides a big bonfire in the form of his Holy Spirit, which speaks of his presence. Fast forward a little bit, uh, we see David come around and King David creates the Ark of the Covenant or builds the Ark of the Covenant. And what ends up happening is you see sort of this movement where God's presence is seen within sort of the Ark of the Covenant. They build the tabernacle. There's fire and smoke rising up over the tabernacle all the time as a result of the sacrifices which speak of God's perennial presence there in the center of all the people of Israel. And then we basically go on to see around the time that after David died, his son basically takes the Ark of the Covenant which was sort of symbolic of the very presence of God itself, and brings it not into a tent, but into a more permanent place called the temple. And it's in this temple that Solomon has his dedication. The dedication takes place on that day when he brings the Ark of the Covenant, which symbolizes the relationship between God and his people. It's a covenant, Ark of a Covenant. And God they brings it into the temple. And the moment he brings it into the temple, it says that the whole temple was filled with smoke. It's an amazing story. I encourage you to read it maybe even later. Second Chronicles 5, 13 to 14. And it was so profound, the smoke just came billowing out. It was a miracle. Nobody could describe it. That they started singing a song. It's a song that sometimes we sing. Because you are good. 
you are good and your love endures forever. So they were singing about the goodness and the love and the generosity and the kindness of God. The Greek or the Hebrews had a word for the, uh, this presence, the power, the glory of God. They called it the Shekinah or the actual Hebrew word is kabod, which basically means the weightiness of God. God's presence was substantial. It wasn't like a feather. It wasn't worth less. It was very worthy. It was very profound. It was very powerful. And on this particular day when they dedicated the temple uh, and the glory of God came in, all the priests literally fell down on their knees and they started worshiping and singing to God because the glory of God, the presence of God, or what we would call the Spirit of God, was so profoundly poured out upon them on that particular day. We also read about in the book of Acts, in the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God comes upon the people. It's very interesting that on that particular day, we see the people have tongues of fire on top of their heads. Also on top of that, they see, this, uh, you know, see sort of uh, the wind blowing. The wind symbolizes, obviously, the presence of God, but also the fire that was on top of their head because Pentecost took place at Mount Sinai when God brought the law down. And the fire that was coming from the mountain itself, it was burning yet not being consumed, it spoke to the people of Israel that now God has given to them his spirit. So Paul would later speak about this and sort of take these concepts that began with the spirit long before the Garden of Eden, all the way through the history of the people of Israel going through the wilderness, all the way through the temple in the Shekinah, the presence, the glory of God. And Paul says, uh, and also recognizing that the, because Jesus has come, the Holy Spirit now is not being poured out upon a location. God is not boxed in. God is not now to be understood in terms of a location or a spot or a zone. There's not a holy place for God to show up. You need to know this. Because most religious uh, types of people and most cults sort of have this idea that say, unless you're in Mecca, you're far from God. Unless you pray to Jerusalem, you're not praying towards God. Unless you have Salt Lake City, some place that you can go to, you're very far from God. Very contrary to that particular idea or concept or thinking to religion, God says, there is no place whereby my spirit dwells except in God's people. That's his whole point. That God's presence now has actually taken up residency inside you. That's why Paul would later go on to say that in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, this is an amazing verse. That God has actually taken his presence and he's put it in you. Paul describes it as a jar of clay. The only thing I can liken this to would be a master, I don't know, I don't know what you call the guys who make wine. Whoever the best, whatever the best winery is in the world, and they make the best wine in all the world that's been stored, it's been, you know, going through the fermentation process for years, and they stick it in a plastic recycled bottle. It's just like, you shouldn't put good wine in a plastic recycled bottle. Exactly. You shouldn't. But it's a mystery that God, in his greatness, places his presence his glory, his kabod, the shekinah, his weightiness in you, in me. That's why Paul says, it's astounding that God has actually put his shekinah glory 
into jars of clay that are fragile, that are prone to break, that are prone to just spill out. This is part of the mystery. This is what Christianity is, that God places his spirit inside of us. It also goes on and describes this, this idea of the spirit is also the spirit of adoption. And Romans chapter 8, he describes this. He says that the spirit is being poured out in the way of adoption. And it's really important. And the final thing I want you to notice is this concept of divine power. We're going to be looking a little bit at this verse. I think this will help us and understand a little bit more about what Paul's writing in Galatians. Second Peter verses one, three, uh, one, uh, chapter 1 verses 3 through 4 says this. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Do you hear what Paul's saying? That because you're a Christian, because God has justified you, the second thing that he's done is he's regenerated you. The Holy Spirit is in you. Therefore, Paul can go so far as to say you actually are a partaker of the divine nature of God. You need to know this. Here's why. Because one of the problems oftentimes that Christianity sort of falls prone to. Because religious people, because we're all prone towards religion, but religious people, especially given the right place, they typically create a Christianity that sort of steps off, stems forth from this concept that we're made right with God through justification, but we continue to keep ourselves right with God by everything I do, by the choices I make, by the way that I live, by the things that I do, by the way that I act out. What I want you to understand is before we start talking about what you need to do for God or what you should be doing for God, the propensity of most people is to pick up their Bible to start thumbing through verses that basically say you got to do this and, and, and tell you how to live this particular way or things that you need to walk out and follow without having those in the proper context of understanding what God has done for you first, then you'll just simply become a legalist and a moralist. You will use the Bible as a means to somehow better your morality, period. You'll become either very prideful and very arrogant and very religious. Just so that you know, it's those type of people that put Jesus to death. Or you will be the type of person that will try to be moral, try to be religious, try to live out what you see the Bible describing and dictating and orienting, and you will see yourself failing, and you will feel very horrible. You will feel like you just, you're a loser. You are a blow it. It's because you are. You can't do it. None of us can. All right? So just simply saying, we can't do it. It's not intended to somehow become a new form of morality or law or legalism. Christianity is different. It's one of the reasons why. When I hear people say Christianity is just another religion, I absolutely flip. Because it's not just another religion. It's not just another means by which we make ourselves right with God or by which we try as hard as we can to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps to make this thing work. It's not what Christianity is. Christianity is what God has done for us, that he saved us, justification. 
and that he gave us his spirit in us. Regeneration. And that our correspondence, our submission, our love to God for what he's done to us, our gratitude, thankfulness for what God has done for me and for you leads me to ask these bigger questions. God, how can I love you back? And the Holy Spirit is already in my heart giving me the ways by which to do that. That's why Jesus would say it this way. If you love me, You'll do what I say. There is a difference between just hearing what Jesus says, reading verses in the Bible, and trying to do them like a moralist, and someone who's absolutely overwhelmed with the love of God and responds out of love to God. That's what Paul would say later. It's the love of Christ that constrains me. Some of you guys live, and your mentality is it's the Fear of God that constrains me. I'm really afraid of God. I'm really afraid of God. I'm afraid that if I don't do things for God, he will get very angry with me and he will destroy me. Or we have these other ways by which we view it. At the end of the day, there is a proper way to live in correspondence and obedience to God. And the only motivation that truly is effective and effectual It's just understanding what God's done for you. So before you start going out trying to do things for God, please understand first and foremost what God in his great love has done for you. Okay? So with that being said, take a look at the next verse. I think this will help us out even further. Next slide. Ezekiel chapter 36, it says this. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be and you will be clean from all uncleanness and from all your idols, and I will cleanse you. This was written hundreds of years before Paul wrote this book. And I think what Paul is trying to do is trying to say that when he talks about the Spirit of God living in us, he's not making up something new. This is not a brand new doctrine. This is not brand new teaching. This is not something that Paul just made up. He didn't invent this. Paul is actually saying everything I'm telling you about was prophesied hundreds of years ago, where God knew That unless something happened in our hearts and changed the actual way by which we think, the way by which we live, then we will all die. We will all continue down a path that will lead to hell. That's where we're all going. Just so that you know. Because some people are kind of baffled by this. I just can't understand how God can send anybody to hell. The real baffling mystery is how that God would take anybody to heaven. I can understand why God would disallow people to go into heaven and cast them into hell i can understand that for the same reason why i don't allow enemies to live in my house under the same roof knowing that my daughters whom i love are there i love my daughters i don't want people that could threaten or harm or hurt my family living i don't want my enemies there i can understand what it means to be cast judgment but what's the mystery for me is how that god could actually receive any of us And this is what Ezekiel says. Take a look again. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from your uncleanness. So the assumption is that they are very unclean, very filthy, very defiled. And from all your idols and idolatry, and I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Here in this great verse, you literally have two enormous 
too huge, beautiful, just so that you know, not only do we love big words at Calvary Slow, but we love more so what they mean. In this huge passage, you not only have justification, i.e., God taking away our uncleanness, God removing our filth, God forgiving us for our idolatry and our idolatrous ways, justification, but you also have regeneration where God says, and I will put my spirit in you. And I will change the very core of who you are and you will be a different person. You will love new things. You will act differently. You will hate things that you used to love and you will love things that you used to hate. The biblical term for that is regeneration. God bringing to birth, to new life, something that does not come naturally in any of us. Jesus would put it this way. John chapter 3 verses 5 through 7. He's talking to a religious leader, a guy by the name of Nicodemus, and there's dialogue and conversation with them. He's having this discussion, and Jesus then answers, and he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot even enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said unto you, you must be born again. Sometimes Christians, I hear Christians describe this, they're like, you know, are you a born again Christian? Really, you don't need to describe it as a born again Christian, as if there's like two types of Christians. There's regular Christian, and then there's the radical Christian, which is the born again Christian. Really, there's only one Christian. All Christians are born again Christians. You got to know this, that the only type of Christian are Christians that are actually born again. This is not some sort of like subclass of better Christians, super Christians, they're the ones that read the Bible a lot and pray and wear the scripture t-shirts and listen to Christian music all the time. That's not, that's not what he's talking about. There's one type of Christian. It's the born again type. All the rest, the rest, even though they may claim to be a Christian, it's in word only. There's something maybe that has not happened in the internal portion of their heart. So here's what I want to say to summarize this particular set, this, this concept right here. The gospel ultimately involves the Holy Spirit being birthed in you. Let me put it this way. If the Holy Spirit is not living in you, you're not a Christian. You don't have new life yet. You may have belonged to a church. You may have been a part of a group of people that are Christians. You may have grown up being moral. You may have had mom or dad that love God, that live morally, that try to impose their moralistic behavior upon you. And you may have actually capitulated to their moralistic behavior. But unless there's something inside you that says, I love Jesus. I have the Spirit living in me. You're really not a Christian. You really don't know the power, the greatness, the kabod, the weightiness of God. It does not exist in you. The point that I would make is this. If that's you, I'm really glad you're here. I'm really glad you're here. But at the same time, because I'm glad you're here and because I love you, I want to make sure that you don't stay in that particular spot whereby you just think because you are married to a Christian, because you have some sort of Christian environment around you, or maybe you work at a Christian job, or you have some sort of Christian background, don't deceive yourself because you are in a Christian environment that you too are also a Christian. A Christian by virtue is somebody that has been given new life. God does this in you. Paul's point is you did not receive the Spirit working in you. Regeneration, because you earned it, because you worked for it. That's why Paul would say elsewhere in Ephesians, in fact, if anything, you were dead in trespasses, 
in your sin, and you are actually alienated from the life of God. That's Paul's whole point. You didn't have life. You were dead. You were very far from God. But God in his mercy, in his great love, in his compassion, in his kindness, actually came to you and regenerated your heart. It's a miracle of what God did in your life. And Paul asked this question, how did you receive the Holy Spirit? By the works of the law, by the hearing of faith. Obviously the implication is that the hearing of faith is what brought about the fact, trusting the fact that Jesus did these things for you, and as a result of that, God gave you life, transformed you, opened your eyes. You were made brand new. The work of the Spirit now is alive inside you. The second thing I want you to notice, that the gospel not only involves the fact that the Holy Spirit is being birthed or has been birthed in you, the second thing is that the, in, the gospel involves the Holy Spirit really at work in you. So this is where it begins to sort of take some flesh and bones. It begins to work its way out. Because the Spirit by nature, by virtue of what it is, it has no body. It has no body. The Holy Spirit is really looking for a place to take up residency inside you. And that's exactly what the Bible teaches, is that the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside you and inside me and begins to work outside, change us and transform us. And that's what you have to understand. That's what Paul is saying. He says this in verse 3, Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now seeking to be perfected in the flesh? So I think his point is this, is that you started out with God moving in you. The Holy Spirit is birthed in you. But now it's as if you're trying to act as if you can perfect that. You can complete that. Paul's like, that's foolishness. You can't do that. You can't somehow add to what Jesus already did. You can't somehow act in a way that's better than or more purer than or more righteous than that which is of the Holy Spirit. You can't. Because that's not the way our hearts work. That's not the way that we think. That's not the way that we act. So Paul's point is that there's a danger having been begun in the Spirit, whereby we're saved by grace, justification, and that we are regenerated, and that the Holy Spirit opens our eyes, and we have faith and confidence in what God has done. We receive his work because God has started this work. The Holy Spirit is now living inside of us. In a sense, we're the host of the Holy Spirit. We host the power and the presence and the weightiness of God. But now what happens is the Holy Spirit begins to work in us. So sometimes people think Christianity, the gospel, is what you need to hear before you come to Jesus. In other words, if you're not a Christian, you need to hear the gospel. But now that you've heard the gospel, now that you've responded to the gospel, now you've got to work out everything else. Now there is a way by which the Bible does speak of works. We do work. Titus is full of this implication that we work. James talks about faith without works is dead. So the implication, the way that I would sort of distinguish this is that there is a faith that has trust and confidence in God. When the Holy Spirit moves inside of us, lives inside of us, we now begin to live out according to the new nature that we have. That's what Paul is saying. Rather than trying to be made righteous or right with God by doing things that we want to do now according to our old nature we now live out according to the new nature that's inside of us I want you to listen to what Philippians chapter 1 basically says next slide says this he who began a good work in you will complete will bring it to completion so God began a good work in you opened your eyes caused you to see your need for Jesus you trusted Jesus you were not only justified 
but you were also brought into this place of regenerated, where God, and through the Holy Spirit, is now living in you, taking up residence in you. And as a result, God is transforming and changing you into a new person. So the very same God who started this good work in you, justification, is also the same God that will bring it to completion. Okay? The second thing, John chapter 14 says this, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. He dwells with you, and he will be in you. So Jesus speaks of the Holy Spirit. He's the helper. He's come to actually be your helper, to come alongside you. The original Greek literally means the one that comes alongside and walks alongside you. So the implication is not only is he inside you, changing your heart, changing your desires, but he's also walking alongside you. Do you know that today? Do you know that? Because some of you guys as Christians, you really struggle. You really struggle. Your major struggle in your life is that you go back and forth. This is where probably most of you are at if you're a Christian. You look at the fact and you say, well, I think I'm a saved. I think I'm a Christian. But I don't get it, man. I still sin a lot. I still think really bad thoughts. I still want to do things that are really bad. I still have a bad temper. I still act in ways that I just know aren't righteous. I still don't want to, you know, resubmit and be a part of maybe something that God's doing. But I feel bad about it. I feel frustrated about it. And it's in that zone that the devil comes to you and says, you're not even a Christian. You're not, you're, you're going to hell. You are toast on God's grill. That's who you are. You will be burned. You are sausage on God's grill. That's about it. You only think you're a Christian. You're really not. But what you need to understand is that by virtue of the very fact that you feel this tug of war inside, by virtue of the fact that you want to do what's right, but you know at the same time there's these passions that are constantly pulling you to do what's wrong, and that you feel it, you feel the conflict, that simply proves you're alive. You've got to know that. You have to know. This is so transformative if you catch this. Because some of you, I talk to you, I know. You spend so much time worrying about your sin. You spend so much time managing the things that you do wrong. And when at the end of the day, the cross, justification, and the Holy Spirit's work through regeneration is to come into your life to help you to live out according to the desires of the Spirit of God, the heart of God. Yes, He convicts us of sin. But if all you're doing is focusing on all your sin, all the time, always feeling bad, never being able to forgive yourself, you know what you're really saying at the end of the day? You're actually saying there is another God other than the true and living God that's higher than that God that says he refuses to forgive. And some of you live like that. You're like, I can't forgive myself. Even though God says, I've already forgiven you, you're actually saying by your actions that you are the God that's above the true and living God. God's forgiven your sin, justified. And the Holy Spirit lives inside you to transform you, to regenerate you, to change your desires so that they're desires of God now, that you love the things that God loves. Second Peter 1, 3 through 4, again says this. We already read this, but it's such an amazing verse. We're gonna do double dips. And not feel bad. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. I want to take this apart. To get this, God's power is in you. Why? 
Because at the end of the day, by nature, by the very nature of who we are, traced all the way back to our original father and mother, Adam and Eve. In Adam and Eve, we have nothing but death and godlessness inside of us, pulsing through our veins. That's who we are. But by virtue of the new birth, we have life and godliness. Do you get that? Do you know that? Do you know that's what God's doing in you? What God has done in you if you're a Christian? This is not about you fighting as hard as you can to make Christianity work. This is about you trusting what God has already done in you and is continuing to do through you. This is huge. It goes on to say, through the knowledge of him who called us to his glory, his own glory and excellence. You get that? This is the summons of a great king. Who out of glory sought you down. Who were dead in your trespasses and sins. Who had nothing to offer this eternally great God. You by very virtue were superfluous to all of God's designs and purposes. Unneeded. Unnecessary. And yet God sought you down and he summoned you. As a great king, and he says, I'm calling you, so come follow me. I'll cleanse you, wash you, forgive you, and I'll give you a brand new heart that is being lived after my own desires, my own passions. And he says in verse 4, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Do you get that? So that you would partake of the divine nature of God. This is not about you trying to figure out how to whip up Christian feeling. This is about you tapping into what's already there. God has already done this work in you. For some of us, you just need to realize what God has already begun in you. To by faith embrace it. To in confidence in the very nature, the work, and the words of God. Just trust it. And let it begin to have its outworking flow in your life. And then he says, having escaped the corruption that is in this world because of the sinful desire. Here's what Paul's point is. Is that this is what God did. He saw you on a crash collision course to hell. That's where your desires were taking you. That's where your evil passions were driving you. That's where your hatefulness and spite towards God was leading you. That's where everything would have directed you had not God intervened. But God intervened and he washed you and cleansed you and changed you. And not stopped there, actually adopted you, brought you into his family. One of the best emails I think I got was a couple weeks ago. This guy emailed me and he says, I sat there on Sunday morning listening to the teaching on justification. He says, I cried the whole way through. He says, because I grew up not having a dad. And if justification is true, then that means I have an eternal dad. I have an eternal dad who loves me who doesn't take advantage of me, who actually cares for me, that gives himself over for me, to me. And I was like, yes, this is exactly what Christianity is about. This is why we call it good news. It is good news. Because we were on a course towards hell, and God intervened and scooped us up and saved us, transformed us. And not only that, but he also fundamentally changed the course of our heart, not just the course of our lives, but our hearts have been changed. See, before we came to Christ, we didn't want God. We wanted independence from God. 
We didn't want the relationship with God. We wanted the gifts of God, not God. But when the Holy Spirit comes into our hearts, at the end of the day, one of the truest evidences of salvation is it's not just the gifts of God you want, it's God you want. It's not just the creation of all that God has, it's God you want. You love God. You have to understand this. This, in and of itself, is a miracle. Let me tell you, when I was around 15 years old, I've told you this before, that was when I became a Christian. I was brought up Catholic. I knew about God my whole life. Prior to becoming a Christian, probably around age 13, around age 15, I partied a lot. Started getting into drinking a lot, partying a lot with my friends. My parents had divorced. I was living with my dad. My mom bailed. I was living with my dad. I became very independent. I just did things that I wanted to do. I started surfing. That's all I did with my time. I hung out with my, brother, my, 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 my friends. We drank a lot and we surfed a lot. That's about it. That's about it. And the reality is, is that when I met Jesus, when God opened my eyes, something happened. Where rather than wanting to avoid God, rather than wanting to just simply have church as sort of a peripheral part of my life, in the margins, man, I wanted God in everything. Literally, after I became a Christian, I was like a sponge. I remember going to this Bible study, it was on Friday nights. I remember walking in there, this group of, this, I don't know, there's upwards of sometimes 100, 150 people come to this Bible study, all high school kids. And we'd just sit there and on the floor and we'd worship, we'd sing songs and we'd pray for hours, sometimes like two hours, two and a half hours on an end. And I couldn't get enough of it. I mean, I was so into it. I would show up like an hour ahead of time. Things started like 6.30. I, I'd get there about 5.30. I'd show up and be like knocking on the door. You know, the lady's like still in her apron. She's like got the vacuum in her hand. She's like, hey, why are you here right now? I'm like, ah, oh, I'm excited for Bible study. She's like, oh, it's about an hour. I'm like, oh, that's cool. I'm excited. Like, she's like, do you want to come in? Oh, sure. Like, I'm all in. So, you know, are you hungry? I'm like, oh, I'll eat anything. So I'm just like eating food and just enjoying my time. She's all, I guess we have a guest for dinner tonight. You want to eat food? I'm like, yeah, I'll be into that. So, and I was a guy that got there early, and I was a guy that like was the latest. So maybe if you've ever done a Bible study, you know those people that show up really early, your house isn't even clean yet, and they stay really late, like nauseatingly late, and you're just like, it's 1130. I'm, I'm tired, man. You want to go home now? That was me. That was me. I mean, I was into it. I wanted everything I can get my hands on about Jesus it was a miracle God changes the fundamental attitude of our heart whereby once we had these desires that he says they were sinful desires that led to destruction but the Holy Spirit now takes up residence in our heart and now you have desires that are not sinful, but are God-glorifying. Sometimes Christians have this mentality, like, you know what, you shouldn't be so passionate. You shouldn't have all these desires. You should suppress your desires. That's what you need to do. I, I would honestly say that's one of the worst things that you can do. Don't suppress your desires. In fact, I think that's one of the reasons why, if you're a Christian, why oftentimes people sin as Christians. It's because you allow yourself to be too easily satisfied. You don't press in, don't press on to the deeper, greater, more foundational joy that's in Jesus. You are too easily satisfied with what's at your fingertips. And God, at the end of the day, is fighting for your deep joy, your deep satisfaction in Him. 
because the Holy Spirit's at work in you. Urging you to press on, to press in. To love that which God loves. To be passionate about that which God is passionate about. To contribute to that which God is eager to devote energies toward. That's what God wants us to do. So my appeal to you is not try harder. It's to trust what God had already begun in your life. At justification and is continuing to do in your life by way of regeneration. He gave you new desires. Live within those new desires. Let them have their natural work in your life, changing you. This is one of the reasons why religion is so bad. Because there's this tendency to just simply modify behavior and somehow think that that's like a cheap caricature of true Christianity. All you have is modified behavior. All you have is morality without power. Christianity is a life changed by power that begins to change on the outside. Our attitudes change. Rather than harboring bitterness, we are quick to disperse forgiveness. Rather than being stingy with our money the way that we used to because we think money is everything, everything to myself, now we see money as really a means by which we can serve God, help the poor, help fund the gospel. Rather than viewing my time, my energy as ultimate, ultimately about me, I can see my time and energy and strength as something that God's gifted to me so that I can give back to him and serving him because I love him. As God gave himself for me, as God was generous with me, as God devoted himself to me, now I can use my body as a living sacrifice to give back to him. The last thing I want to finish with is this. The gospel involves the Spirit's ongoing work in the church. Paul basically says this, verse 4, Do you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? I think the implication is that these people suffered. They went through difficult times. He doesn't give any indication as to what type of difficulties they had gone through. But he goes on, he says, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? And so Paul makes mention to these works of miracles. And so oftentimes, you know, Christian circles, there's all this discussion as to about miracles, you know. And again, I, I hear Christians sometimes are like, you know what, there's like two classifications of Christians. There's the spirit-filled Christians, and then there's just the regular Christians. I want to suggest to you that type of classification is not biblical. There's one type of Christian, spirit-filled Christian. Every Christian that knows Jesus has the Spirit of God living in you, filling you, strengthening you, moving in you. Now there are different ways by which we can quench the Spirit of God. Paul says that. Our sin, our desires that are not in sync or in line with the Spirit can sometimes quench the Spirit's passions and working in our lives. But everybody who is a Christian has a Spirit living inside you. And Paul's referring now to the larger body. The point that I think he would make is this is that the church not only experienced suffering, but it also experienced these miracles. So the point that I would want to make is this, is that sometimes we think of Christianity exclusively in terms of the individual. We talk about my experience with Jesus, my personal relationship with Christ, and it's good. It's not less than that, but it is far more than that. God did come to save you individually, but not just you individually, 
And not just to save you as an individual, but to save you as an individual to bring you into a body, into a whole, into a corporate whole that Jesus one day will marry. Calls it his bride. So this is why it's very important if you are a Christian, if the Spirit of God's living in you, the mentality that's very anti-church is actually not in sync with the heart of God. I know it's popular today, in today's circles, in today's world, oftentimes because church, the church today gives a lot of you know, good ammunition in terms of excuses, why the church is all messed up and out of whack and people are doing weird stuff and pastors running off with the secretary and taking money and flying his jet around the world and on TV and using all sorts of hairspray in his hair. It's just a horrible, horrible setup. And there's a lot of reasons why you can look at the church and find excuses as to why it's all messed up. I'm aware of that. But my point is that at the end of the day, Jesus actually loves his church. He loves his church. And Paul's point is that how did God bring the Holy Spirit into the midst of the church? Is it by works? How did these miracles happen amongst you? Was it because you guys earned them? Because you guys fasted and prayed for them and you guys brought them about by your own good works, by your own good efforts? Let me even say this. Praying is very important, but at the end of the day, if you look at your praying and think, I prayed and this happened, there's a better way to term that. If you would want to say praying brought something about, it'd be better for you to say, I prayed out of obedience to God, out of trust in God, and God acted. It wasn't your prayer that did anything. It was God that did everything. You understand that? I mean, God may have used your prayer, but at the end of the day, it was God who released whatever it was to you that he wanted to do. And he put it upon your heart in the first place to even pray for it. So everything goes back to God. So the church is about this group and the miracles in which they were seeing. He doesn't, again, give us any indication what type of miracles these are. So a lot of times it's open to speculation. Some people might say miracles of healing and all these other types of things. Let me suggest to you, the greatest miracle is not healing. The greatest miracle is not Somebody going from being blind to seeing again, those are great miracles. In fact, if they were happening here today, everyone would be like, this is amazing, it's awesome. But there's also a tendency and a propensity to look at those things as being ultimate in and of themselves. And I'd like to suggest to you that the purpose of every healing miracle in the New Testament, without question, is to lead to the greatest miracle. That spiritual blindness would be taken away, that people can see Jesus. That's why God does miracles. That's the greatest miracle of all. That's the greatest miracle of all. If you're here today and you can say in your life, you once were lost, but now you're found. You once used to hate God, you used to once despise God. What was holy used to once despise God's word, used to once not like the church, but today you actually, you actually love the Bible, you actually love to hear the Bible taught, you actually love God's people. That's a miracle. You didn't do that. You didn't do that. That was God who did that for you. That is a huge miracle which should actually drive us to our knees and lead us to be full of joy. So my appeal to you guys is this. We should not be people with less passion, but with more passion. With not less desires, but right desires. 
The desires that come from the heart of God. Think about this verse. There's this verse in the Old Testament that says that God one day will stand over his people and rejoice over them with loud singing. Somehow, if you can somehow do it in a sacred way, think of God rejoicing and dancing over you as a proud, happy, loving, joyful, just completely exuberant father because you're there with them. This is why this is good news. Because we were once lost, but now we're found. This completely removes any platform of boasting, of arrogance, or pride. This completely removes any type of classifications whereby we say, white hat, black hat, good guy, bad guy. Because we're all bad guys. There's only one good guy, and it's the God guy, Jesus, who came for us to save us, to transform us, to place his spirit in us so that we who are in desperate need of help can take our old desires that led to destruction, slavery, brokenness, and death could now actually lead to life and joy and happiness in God. We're going to sing. We're going to respond. We're going to have Michael come on up. and He's going to lead us in some worship. We're going to partake of communion. It's a way for us to remember what Jesus did for us on the cross. As we partake of communion, if you're here and you're not a Christian, the most important thing for you is not communion. It's for you to receive and trust Jesus. It's for you to know what Jesus did for you. It's for you to know that Jesus died for you in your place because he loves you. That God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit were working in Trinitarian strength, might, power, love, and grace to save you. God the Father loves you. Jesus the Son died for you. The Holy Spirit is at work in you. Changing your desires. Transforming your desires. So that you would love the things that God loves. Hate the things that God hates. How did you receive this, Calvary's love? By your works, by your commitment, by your faithfulness? No. It's all a gift. Gifts can only be received. And at the end of the day, it's only the giver of those gifts that can get the glory. That's where we want to be. Jesus, thank you for the cross. We realize, God, apart from your benevolence, your love, your kindness, your mercy, we'd be nowhere. And yet, God, in kindness, greatness, mercy, and love, you saved us. You grabbed us. You snatched us like a firebrand out of the fire. And you washed us, you cleansed us, and you put a new heart in us. So God, in response to that, we, we just say thank you. We want to sing to you. We want to partake of communion that reminds us of what Jesus did for us sin to you because Lord you're, you're worthy to wash and cleanse us from the defilement of sin we want to trust you with our lives